0: From bad to worse in Haiti, the monkeypox virus and vaccine in South Florida, and the effort to preserve more of the underwater world. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Political instability and a terrible economy have devolved into violence and growing hopelessness in Haiti. What are the conditions there now? What is the response of the diaspora here? And what is America doing? Plus, the monkeypox virus is still rare in Florida, with fewer than 100 cases, according to official data. Yet most are in South Florida. There has been strong demand for the vaccine and short supplies. Is this another flat-footed response to a public health risk? And then the effort to add more than almost 1,000 square miles to the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. It's an effort to protect what's below the sea surface. It's all made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public media. The situation in Haiti keeps deteriorating with no sign of improving. In Cite Soleil, clashes between rival gangs have burned down homes, taken lives, and injured many more. Rising scarcity of food and water now, and increasing fuel shortage stretching Haitian citizens thin as they attempt to flee this violence. Roads have been blocked off, preventing farmers from transporting goods across the island and increased transportation costs, making it much harder for humanitarian aid to make it inland. Now the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse has led to a power vacuum over the past year and it's allowed these gangs to rise up. At the same time the United States and the United Nations really unsure about how to handle this vacuum going forward. Members of the United Nations Security Council have been trying to vote this week on a UN presence in the country. Today Friday the UN political mission in Haiti expires. How has this affected your family, your community? Co-workers here in South Florida, large number of the Haitian diaspora here in South Florida. Perhaps you're among that group. We work with them. We are neighbors with them. We want to hear from you. 800-743-WLRN. 800-743-9576. At WLRN on Twitter to join our conversation. No better person to talk about Haiti than our colleague at the Miami Herald, Jacqueline Charles. Jackie, welcome back to the South Florida Roundup. Thanks for your time today
1: thanks for having me
0: difficult uh, situation just getting worse by the day by the hour in some cases in some locations you were in Haiti recently. Tell us about what you experienced
1: um, yes I have to tell you it um, you know what I experienced when I was in Haiti is a place I was in the, the capital and it really functions just by daylight um, mm-hmm. People do not leave their homes before sunrise. Um, as soon as it hits three o'clock, you see people just racing um, to get off the streets. Um, You know, and and it's not because, you know, gangs only kidnap people at night, right? But it's that people are feeling so helpless that whatever they can do to give themselves some measure of security that, you know, they're trying to do it. And I just remember like at two o'clock in the morning, I just could not eat even hear a car you can hear a pin <laughs> drop because there were no cars passing on the streets and i've been on the streets you know just in the last two or three years at that time in the morning and so what you're seeing is day by day this is a country that's just degenerating the situation is just getting worse and worse and now this week we see this gang violence this just deadly awful gang violence in city soleil uh A LOCAL HUMAN RIGHTS GROUP SAYS AT LEAST 89 PEOPLE um, WERE KILLED, AND THEY JUST WEREN'T KILLED. AT LEAST 21 OF THEM WERE SET ON FIRE, Mm. BURNED TO DEATH. Mm. Um, I'VE SPOKEN TO PEOPLE INSIDE. THEY TALK ABOUT HOW SOME PEOPLE HAVE TRIED TO FLEE BY SEA FROM ONE PARTICULAR AREA, AND THE GANGS HAVE BEEN SHOOTING ON THEM IN, YOU KNOW, IN THESE CANOES AS THEY'RE TRYING TO GET AWAY. Um, and that's really, really sad. This morning, um, one of the other gangs, um, Katsamaozo, we, we know this gang because mm-hmm. they were the ones that took responsibility for the 16 Americans and one Canadian missionary that was kidnapped last fall and and, and held for over 40 days while well, they tried to cross over from the eastern Outskirts of the capital to come into downtown to City Soleil to reinforce one of the gangs. And so residents actually blocked one of the roads um, there in order to try to prevent this. But it's, it's just chaotic. The yeah. situation really is chaotic.
0: What What's motivating these gangs or just even groups of individuals? What is it that they're after?
1: Well, you know, when you talk to people, they tell you that the gangs are fighting for territory. But I will have to tell you that. But
0: territory to do what, Jackie? Exactly. Ter-
1: territory to, to, to tax people. Um <laughs> unlawfully. I mean, you know, it, I think that's people, called
0: extortion, right?
1: Extortion, yeah. extortion rackets to control um, where City Soleil is, it's next to the port. So you're controlling the ports. Some people think that they're actually trying to control votes in an election that has not yet been scheduled because imagine the kind of violence that's happening. Who's going to go and vote in, in, in this situation? In some of these neighborhoods, the the gangs have become law and order. The gangs, if you have a problem with someone, well it's the gang leader that that basically plays judge and jury and, and and decides and then people actually you know pay money every week so that they get free passage or or they get some sort of protection. Um, we've, we've seen it in the eastern parts, but what it's now is that we're seeing seeing this also turn into massacres and that's what's unclear here in the case of city Soleil is it just because you want to control territory and what is essentially the largest slum in Haiti or or is there something more behind this right. that we don't know? The yeah. gangs took over the courthouse like a month ago. Uh,
0: uh, oh boy! Uh, are there certain groups that these gangs are targeting as they, you know, try to grab geographic territory, economic power, political power? Is it is there some kind of uh, is there an ideology behind this, or is it wanton violence?
1: So in this particular case, what you have is this very powerful G9 federation led by a former police officer who's better known as barbecue Jamie He's already been implicated in a massacre that happened in La Saline in twenty eighteen, which is another um neighborhood not far from City Soleil, actually next door. Um, And he issued a a video this week where he says that he, this is war, this is a battle to free the country from underneath kidnappers. But the target of his attack is a neighborhood within City Soleil known as Brooklyn, and that's controlled by a rival gang. Mm. And the fear is that if, you know, he were to go off and, and take over these territories that are controlled by other gangs, you would have this federation today that basically controls almost all of this space within, you know, the city of Port-au-Prince itself. But again, for what purposes? So mm-hmm. that the government will have to come and negotiate with them? Um, it's unclear. You know, the, the police cannot get guns and ammunition, but the gangs today are heavily armed with automatic rifles. And they've got ammunition galore. Just yesterday, while all of this is happening, the police basically had some containers that came in, found at least seventeen automatic rifles, hmm. forty-three magazines and ammunition, and you know, and, you, and imagine your the cops don't have ammunition. Yeah.
0: So what? Wh- uh, what I want to ask you a question about civil institutions, but before we get there, this ammunition, these guns, where are they coming from? Uh, uh, How are these street gangs or individuals ordering them and paying for them?
1: They're coming from Miami. They're coming from Florida. Um, And uh, they are getting through, uh, because I'm told that the U.S. government, doesn't check containers when they are leaving. Is there a Uh,
0: systemic, uh, uh, is is there a system in place that has this trade or or is this, I mean, akin to uh, firearm remittances?
1: Well, well, so we saw this in the case of um, the gang leader, um, quote unquote, Jermaine Jolie, who was just extradited from Haiti um, in May, right? In the criminal complaint, it was. it's very interesting because it talks about how he was in prison at the National Penitentiary in Port-au-Prince. And he was basically ordering guns from Florida, from gunshots. He had um, individuals here who were using straw buyers, but they were going around and they were calling him on WhatsApp while he was in in prison and having video calls and saying, hey, is this the gun that you want? Is this one okay? Um, And basically we saw how they were purchasing these, these weapons and then they were putting them in, you know, containers with clothing and toys and then even taking a picture to show exactly where the gun was headed. That they were sending, and then the gun arrived, you know, in Haiti, and it was, you know, consigned to someone and, and dropped off at, the, at their homes. What happened is we are relying on the Haitians at the port to basically check these containers when they come in. Well, if the ports are controlled by certain individuals yeah. and they know this stuff is coming in, then it gets in. I mean, that's it, the situation there. Uh, Unfortunately, with the corruption at the port, um, paying people off, we are seeing that this is this is ending up. And even there was a case just last week where they confiscated a bunch of weapons. And the person who supposedly was responsible was arrested and then was free.
0: Hmm. Jackie Charles is with us, uh, Caribbean correspondent for our news partner, the Miami Herald. No better person to talk to about the uh, really awful devolving uh, hum- humanity crisis that is developing in Haiti. She's covered Haiti for a good number of years. I'd love to hear from you, 800-743-WLRN. You're listening to this conversation. It is, uh, it is uh, uh, certainly news in our community here in South Florida, Eight hundred seven four three wlrn or at WLRN on Twitter. Uh, Jackie, what, if any, civil institutions are present in the daily lives of Haitians? As you describe Haiti as a uh, sun-up to sun-down community now, where people flee from the streets before the sun sets. Are there civil institutions that are present in the lives of Haitians?
1: You have civil institutions like the human rights groups, which, you know, are the ones who have spoken up um, about these massacres. But unfortunately, the institutions that are missing is the government and the state institutions, which are essentially non-existent. I mean, I, I mentioned that the gangs um, about a month ago took over the main courthouse of Port-au-Prince. Right. Right. Imagine if you've got your divorce papers, land papers in there, these things have now just gone up in, in smokes because they literally set fire to them. Um, another part of the capital in quite bouquet, people haven't been able to get To that courthouse today, you have a police force of twelve thousand four hundred cops for twelve million people. Um, That's not a lot that you can do with that. When,
0: Um, when, when, when when folks talk about the government in Haiti, who or what is that today?
1: Today, you have an interim government led by Dr. Ariel Henry, who's a neurosurgeon Mm -hmm. who was tapped by President Jovenel Moise. You know a few months before he was assassinated and i think a lot of people forget is that before this july 7th assassination last year president moiz was the target of large amounts of protest accusations that he was trying to become latin america next um dictator because there were no, there was no parliament he was passing um scores mm-hmm. <laughs> of yeah, laws right by, by- so this was a country, and we were already in the terms of gang violence and kidnappings. We were seeing it. So what has now stepped in is you have an interim government. Its its legitimacy has been questionable. Um, the U.S. is basically saying we want the Haitian political actors to have a dialogue, and we want you to come up with a roadmap. Members of civil society, a group, better known as the Montana group, they've saying, listen, we want to take charge of this country. We have a two-year transition plan, and we can fix some of the things that, that that, you know, they're wrong, but these two, they finally met again yesterday in a, the third round of talks. We're going gonna—we're watching it again today to see, but I don't know. Some people will argue that uh, when you look at the level of insecurity and gang violence and kidnappings in this country, is really some political agreement among various political factions, is that going to bring peace to the average Haitian, or does that just provide the international community yeah. an excuse to do what they want?
0: Mm. Um, and then uh, migration. I mean, you mentioned awful instances of these gangs firing upon uh, uh, Haitians trying to leave by canoe or boat. Uh, the state of migration last summer on the southern border here in the United States, very familiar with that story here in Miami. What's the status of temporary protected status for Haitians in the United States now or those who are able to uh, to make safe passage here?
1: So I have to tell you, you know, we are today in the largest boat migration crisis um, of Haitians since 2004. While a lot of focus was put on Del Rio, um, Texas, those are people who are- That was the
0: situation last summer at the southern border. Yeah,
1: last summer. Those are people who were coming from Chile, from Brazil, having fled Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. But what's been happening right here in front of, under our very nose in South Florida is that Haitians have been leaving the island by boat and sometimes it's ended up tragically more than 6,000 since October and so those that have managed to to make it because a few of them have um, there is no temporary protective status right now in the United States for for, for Haitians who are newly arriving Um, the majority of them are expelled very quickly um, back to Haiti if they're crossing the southern border of the United States if they are caught at sea they are repatriated and taken back to Haiti, people are fleeing and they're fleeing kidnappings and they're fleeing the gang violence. They're risking their lives to go to an isolated area of the country to basically get on a boat to further risk their lives. And what they tell me is like, look, we're already dead. The only difference is that we're not buried yet.
0: Wow. 800-743-WLRN, our phone numbers. we're talking about the... uh, the really worsening conditions in Haiti uh, and South Florida here on WLRN, 800 9576 Jacqueline Charles is with us, Caribbean correspondent for our news partner, the Miami Herald. John has been listening to the conversation, Jackie, in Miami. John, we want to hear from you. Thanks for calling. You're on the radio. Hi, how you doing, sir? Good.
2: Um, I just wanted to touch back on something Jackie mentioned earlier regarding the United States not checking outgoing cargo. Um, we do. Um I'm a federal officer. I can tell you that we're very strict and um and we do we do we do a very good job at checking cargo. unfortunately, we're understaffed just like mm. every law enforcement agency in South Florida, and we're not able to get to every single one of them. but this year alone, we've stopped several several weapons from reaching the hands of uh, of gang members and um and we've even gone as far as working uh, in collaboration with other law enforcement agencies in these countries as well to do what is known as a control delivery, where we try to um, to deliver the weapons with law enforcement agencies, and then they make the arrest on the people. Now, what happens in that country, Then that's out of our hands. We don't have jurisdiction there. But um, but we are very good at what we do, and, and, and we would like to continue doing our job as, as, as much as we can.
0: John, I appreciate you. Uh... Listening and sharing the story here, the agency that you're we with, uh, I, I take you first hand knowledge. You've been on the port, for instance, looking at these containers yourself.
2: I'm part of a team that that goes through the outgoing cargo that's heading to South America, that goes over to the islands, and yes, like Jackie described, they do they mix they mix it with uh, with regular goods, toys, uh, clothes, and we have to be very good at what we do.
0: Yeah, to to find it. Sh- um, share that experience.
2: Makes it. They, They'll mix it with uh with car parts and that makes it really difficult with an x-ray but we, we got to find yeah. it.
0: Yeah, share that experience, that process. Uh, for those of us who who, you know, aren't on that front line, walk us through. You you you're walking up to uh what a 40-foot container and what happens next.
2: So basically um we do anything from containers to to barrels. Sometimes they'll ship it in barrels, they'll ship it on planes. Uh it's not only on ships that it goes on. Yeah, out. fair enough. Um Basically, we have to go through 55 gallon drums. Some of them weigh about 250 to 300 kilograms. And uh, we got to x ray. We got to x ray everything. We got to open every single thing. We got to empty it all out, put it back in, and and look for the weapons that way. We actually actually have a very good working relationship with um, a lot of the warehouses surrounding the Miami airport. um, And they'll call us if something looks suspicious in their x ray. And they'll let us know to come and take a look. And, uh, and and we've gone into several of these warehouses and, and yeah. we found that um, that the shipment is, is mixed with weapons. Sometimes they sell the weapons whole. Sometimes they send the weapons in parts. Now, it's unfortunate, but it, it does happen. But I just want to let the public know that yeah. it doesn't go unnoticed, and, and, and we're doing our part.
0: Again, I appreciate you calling, and I know you didn't call for me to uh, spark a conversation, but you have this firsthand knowledge, a unique knowledge here, on the front lines uh john if you could share with us i mean i just i made the wrong assumption that most of this if not all of it was more of a maritime trade but it sounds like your experience john with the with the federal agency you work with these these weapons are also making their way to haiti via via the air
2: oh yeah of course
0: and and is that on commercial planes
2: um no it's on cargo planes okay it's on cargo planes hmm
0: John, uh, as all th- thanks for calling. I appreciate it. You're just a listener there, but sharing your professional experience with us uh, for clarity. Much Thank appreciated, you, John. Yeah, sure. Uh, Jackie, what uh, uh, interesting, uh, their personal experience there on the front lines well, of pre- this. Yeah,
1: I appreciate that. But, you know, in in one week, we've had three shipments um, that have been discovered with guns, so, you know, automatic weapons. And this is the question that Haitians have been asking. How is it that these weapons are, are are getting through. There's a particular port in Florida where when you go in, you know, they tell you no guns, you know, in the cars, but they basically allow people to put whatever they want, you know, um, in the in the trunks of these vehicles when they're shipping them to Haiti. And so I know that the Homeland Security Investigations has opened up an office in Port-au-Prince, but the reality is, is that these weapons are still ending up there and People have been very curious about what's happening on this end. And I've been told by State Department officials that says, oh, but well, we know we can't check everything that's going mm-hmm.
0: out. Yeah. And John, they're describing just being short staffed as well. Yeah. Jacqueline, thanks so much for uh, sharing all the reporting with us. Always great to have you on the program. Thank you. Jackie Charles is uh, the Caribbean correspondent covering Haiti for our news partner of the Miami Herald here on the South Florida Roundup. Still to come, monkeypox, the virus and vaccine in our region. 800-743-WLRN, our phone number. Have you tried to get the vaccine? Share that experience with us. 800-743-WLRN. on the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening and supporting public media. As of Thursday this week, the Centers for Disease Control Monkeypox tracker states there are about 1,500 confirmed cases of the virus in the United States. That same tracker states Florida has 72 cases. South Florida is the epicenter of those. 70% of all cases here in the Sunshine State are in Broward and Miami-Dade counties, according to the Florida Department of Health. Local doctors say the number is most likely an undercount, as many may be unaware that they're infected or have not yet been tested. Demand for the monkeypox vaccine, meantime, has increased throughout the entire country as concerns about the virus's ability to entrench itself in the country mount. The virus's prevalence in the LGBTQ plus community has led public health officials to prioritize getting vaccines. But is the government as concerned as everyone else is about getting the vaccines out? Is this another flat-footed response to a public health threat? 800-743-WLRN to join our conversation. Questions, concerns about monkeypox? Perhaps you've uh, tried successfully or unsuccessfully to get a monkeypox vaccine. Share that experience with us at 800-743-WLRN. Daniel Chang is with us, Miami Herald health reporter back here on the South Florida Roundup. Dan, first uh, basic facts here of monkeypox for us. Uh, uh, What is it and who is most uh, at risk for this uh, virus now? Hey, Tom, Uh, thanks for having me. and I'm glad to be back. So, uh, Tom, uh, just as we're talking, the
3: CDC is holding a press briefing to update uh, media on on monkeypox. And uh, the CDC director, uh, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, was was just talking uh, about this, and and basically uh, has a, a good response for you. And it, it's what it is. It's it's a it's a virus. It's it's part of the family of viruses that also includes uh, smallpox and and other types of, of diseases. Um, uh, so you know h- how it spreads primarily is really through close skin on skin physical contact. Um, uh, also, by uh, by touching sheets or towels that may have been used by someone who has monkeypox, um, especially blisters, uh, and and also through uh, close face-to-face interactions um, because it's believed to also spread through droplets. So uh, that could include kissing or, or other intimate contact. And uh, look, they're anticipating, uh, the, the, I think the, the most startling takeaway, and I'm sorry to bury the lead here, is that they're anticipating an increase in the coming weeks. Uh, for three main reasons. Uh, One of them is that the CDC says they've transitioned to a a new reporting system that's more streamlined and will allow states to make it easier and quicker to report cases in real time. Um, But also with the increase in cases, they expect that they're gonna start seeing the results of this increased exposure. And it typically takes about three weeks after exposure for the symptoms to to begin. So they're anticipating an increase in cases basically throughout July and, and into August. And uh, they've seen a significant number of of people seeking lab tests and certainly as well uh, as vaccines, if you mentioned, but I'll Mm. stop there.
0: Yeah, no, I appreciate it. You're listening with one ear to the news conference and (laughs) sharing it with us here uh, live as we're uh, on this Friday here. So I appreciate the dual attention, Dan. Absolutely. How dangerous is is the virus?
3: Well, look, it's not fatal. Uh, there, there's very few of any uh, mortality reported from this disease, but, you know, the, the, other, um, uh, the other group of, of physicians and scientists who've, who've been meeting about this recently is the Infectious Disease Society of America, and they held their press briefing yesterday. AND uh, there, THERE WAS AN INFECTIOUS DISEASE DOCTOR THERE FROM uh, NEW YORK CITY WHERE where THEY'VE HAD uh, PERHAPS MORE CASES REALLY THAN ANY OTHER JURISDICTION IN THE COUNTRY AND SHE SAID THAT THERE ARE PEOPLE WHO ARE REALLY SUFFERING ON THE GROUND AND SOME OF WHO ARE AT RISK OF PERMANENT DAMAGE. Um, THEY'RE UNABLE TO GO TO THE BATHROOM hmm. uh, OR eat, EAT WITHOUT excruciating PAIN uh and and the risks are are i think scarring and and perhaps you know when she talks about permanent damage um and and potentially scarring of certain parts of the body because it affects genitals um so again it's not a deadly disease tom but it's it's spreading and we have the ability to contain it and um there are lots of other difficulties uh, uh, that I, I'm sure we'll get to uh, later on in the show. Yeah, how does right.
0: one test for monkeypox? Uh, uh, you know, the last two years has yeah. uh, been quite a public health and communication uh, experiment about uh, about testing for viruses. What about this monkeypox? How, how does one get a test and, and conduct a test?
3: Well, uh, Tom, it, now uh, you, you're able, you, you got to get a test either through your provider uh, you could try through the Department of Health, but also um, uh, the CDC and the, and the federal government has signed on with uh, uh, LabCorp and other commercial labs, uh, perhaps Quest as well, that that will offer these tests. So they've increased capability, uh, Rochelle Walensky was saying, uh, immensely from about 7,000 to nearly 7,000 uh, uh, to nearly 70,000 uh, uh, a day, perhaps, that they can take. Mm-hmm. But these results take time. And to hear the physicians on the ground talking about it, including Dr. Lillian Abo, who were at Jackson Memorial Hospital here in Miami, uh, it's difficult to get these tests. It had been more difficult. So initially, when they started, uh, they were sending texts to the tests to the Department of Health, uh, and they had to have them tested through the public health labs, and that could take days to get a response. It still does, but instead of eight days, it takes maybe three days, is what they were saying. Um, so it, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's it's gotten better. Um, and and what she says is that uh, you know what they've complained about as well. What I heard the doctors talking about is that the approval process of of having to go through multiple layers of administrative approvals and paperwork to get treatment, there is an antiviral available that is not indicated. It's indicated for smallpox. It's not
0: indicated for monkeypox. Indicated meaning approved by the FDA. Correct. Yeah,
3: exactly. So they need to get a special
0: sort of waiver to use it for something other than smallpox. Yeah, off-label use of something like this
3: right it's very similar so um so look over the last week they've started using the commercial labs to answer your question but remember there's also a cost associated with those Mm. uh Mm. and and So that puts a strain on resources. Um, But yes, that's
0: that's the response. Uh, Daniel, stick with us here. Uh, We'll take your questions uh, that you may have about Uh, monkeypox. 800-743-9576 is our telephone live on this Friday. 800-743-WLRN. We're going to welcome in Robert Boo to the conversation. Robert is the CEO of the Pride Center at Equality Park in Wilton Manors. Robert, thanks for creating some time to talk to us today.
4: Well, thank you for the information, Tom. I hope you're able to hear me correctly. Uh,
0: I can hear you loud and clear, Robert. Uh, I'll, I'll ask about vaccines in a moment, but what about testing? Uh, we were just talking about uh, some of the efforts to improve the time to test with uh, with Dan. Uh, what experiences uh, are you hearing about from from folks that are trying to get monkeypox virus tests?
4: Well, back in uh, June, June um, 16th or 15th, actually, to be exact. We actually held a monkeypox town hall where we had a panel of three physicians um, that we were trying to get the word out prior to the uh, Stonewall Street Festival. Mm -hmm. All of the pride events, we wanted to educate them and ensure the community knew that monkeypox was in the community, that it was spreading. Um, And so one of the doctors, um, Dr. Henry from AHF, uh explain the process that um he he for example that week actually had a patient come in they thought it was an, a different sti it turned out to be monkeypox they had to send it off to the cdc to have it sti uh, is a sexually
0: transmitted infection is that right robert Yes. Okay. that is correct okay. sorry yeah. about that no that's all right that's all right i want to make sure we 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 know the acronyms there and, and so uh, continue on please with that uh, with that example
4: so it had to be confirmed through the cdc so that was the process in um, mid to late June. So I don't know if they've made any uh, changes in the process up through up till now. Yeah. But at least that that's that was the process.
0: Now we do know that there is a vaccine uh, for monkeypox, and uh, the federal government has been allocating the vaccines to uh, states and communities based upon what the CDC says are are uh, confirmed cases. Uh, Robert, what's been your experience? I think that uh, that you've used the Pride Center as a vaccine uh, uh, location. Is that right?
4: That is correct. We, um, Friday of last week, we around 4 o'clock, we got the approval uh, that we were going to be a site for vaccinations. So at 4 o'clock, we sent out the notice. Um, we uh, have uh, vaccination times Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week from 12 to 8 p.m., and then tomorrow from 12.30 to 4.30. So that allowed us to have 864 uh, total appointments available. And by Saturday morning at 11 a.m., all 864 Mm. appointments were filled. So that shows the concern within the community and the education process is working to bring the awareness. This is not a time to panic, uh, as Daniel Um, stated monkeypox uh, is not a deadly virus. It is a very uncomfortable and it's very easy to pass along through the skin on the skin contact, just as Daniel said.
0: Daniel, what about uh, vaccine availability and supplies? Uh, You you know, some have have, uh, brought up concerns about the early days of the COVID vaccine and difficulty in uh, grabbing some of those appointments back when you still had to sign up online. Uh, what what do we know well, about the about the supply and the distribution of the uh, vaccine?
3: The supply is limited, as as Robert's indicated, and as as the CDC has said. Um, Dr. Walensky, the director of the CDC, was just talking about that um, uh, that it is frustrating, and that uh, you know it's it's a two phase um, uh, 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 vaccination. Um, but what, they're, what, the, what, what the Department of Health and Human Services and, and cooperation with the CDC are doing, she said, is that they're allocating, they're, they're priori- prioritizing uh, the jurisdictions where they're seeing the greatest number of cases and the communities that are at highest risk. And in Florida, that, that includes uh, Broward is the jurisdiction where we've seen the greatest number of cases. And um as as we've discussed you know one of the communities at highest risk is certainly um men who have sex with men Mm -hmm. but it's important to remember that there are women and children who've also globally uh gotten gotten infected this is a global outbreak very similar to COVID-19 and it's going to require an, an overall response that that um you know takes into account that this is a disease that 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 can spread easily uh, perhaps not as easily as COVID nineteen, yeah. but certainly it appears to be on the rise.
0: Robert, what it, what it does the, the uh, LGBTQ plus community make early on in the response from uh, health regulators, uh, state health folks, uh, CDC, and, and others involved in this response thus far?
4: Well, there, there was um, obviously there was a lot of concern, and people were wanting to get more information. Um, I want to piggyback on what Daniel said, this is not a gay men's disease or virus, it affects everyone in the community, so it is in the interest of the entire community that we try to contain this, and we don't stigmatize it to say, oh, it's only gay men who have to worry about this, I'm not gay, uh, so I don't have to worry about it, but it does impact the entire
0: community. Uh, there's certainly the science involved, and, and, and that uh, uh, shows through in this. Are there echoes, though, Robert, of the early days of HIV and AIDS as the LGBTQ plus community wants to wants to deliver just that message, that this is a, a global, a community-wide, uh, uh, you know, a regional-wide uh, public health threat?
4: Yeah, and and that's why the more we talk about it, and we talk about it at kitchen table topics, we, one, we uh, remove the stigma. And two, we also ensure that people aren't sitting there and going, well, this doesn't impact me, so I don't have to worry about it.
0: Yeah. And so, uh, Robert, you mentioned you had... Uh, appointments or do have appointments not available though. You're vaccinating today uh, right at the uh, Pride Center as we speak. You've got appointments all afternoon and tomorrow?
4: Correct. So um, if you go to our website pridecenterflorida.org, that's all spelled out. We'll click on the link to see if there's any available um, appointments that do become available. Uh, Keep in touch because going back to the website because additional Vaccination dates may be added. We're waiting to hear. Uh, The city of Wilton Manors also was providing um, vaccines uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of this week and uh, may add additional days to their allotment as well next week. So it's it's continuing to evolve. People just need to be, and it's really easy for me to say, people need to be patient. They need (laughs) to be aware and they need to just kind of check and see uh, if an opening does come up, or if additional sites or dates are
0: added, Daniel, I, I'm sure that uh, that some of what uh, Robert is describing in terms of the process of securing a vaccine appointment is rhyming with uh, what we experienced in the early days of the COVID nineteen vaccine. Right? Uh, be patient. Uh, look online. Hit refresh. Hit the link. You know, all of those types of things. Is this? Could this? How does this contribute to vaccine access and equity?
3: well uh, you know tom it, it's it's a great question because we all access healthcare differently and yeah, it's important to it's important to remember that now these vaccines don't don't cost anything but remember you know the very first point before you know uh, um for, for those who who do get infected who are at risk and not vaccinated um you know the tests aren't free this isn't like the COVID 19 test Um, They can cost 90 to $100 and and for someone who's uninsured that can that can be a a real burden. Um, uh, But, you know, in in terms of the frustrations accessing the vaccine, I think it's just kind of the difficulties that we often see when we try to launch a a campaign. Uh, This is a lot more targeted, though, you know, and there are fewer people, but there are also fewer vaccines available there hasn't been a a, a big increase in in production yet yeah. uh and so you know the, I, I think the supplies are more limited perhaps to some degree um and and similarly we have to identify again those those places where where the disease is spreading faster but also those those people who are at highest risk of of either contracting it or developing severe illness. And, and when you asked earlier about severe illness, Tom, I forgot to mention that, yeah. you know, among the cases that, uh, for instance, Dr. Abo at Jackson Memorial said that she saw that were severe, are people with immunocompromised conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be HIV or it could be cancer treatment. But, you know, a, a lot of times um, because of these, these bur- these administrative burdens that you have to go through, for instance, getting the test, have no wait a couple of days to get the result um then having to go through the administrative burden of trying to get treatment you know somebody could run the course uh, the disease could run its course yeah. or perhaps it could continue to get worse so uh, you know they're still trying to um to get things to work right I guess or the trains to run on time mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's the right metaphor yeah. Yeah. uh yeah but you know that's that's always difficult to do yeah. um, especially at the outset mm-hmm. so and um education is important uh, they everybody emphasized how it's important to really educate the community, let them know that this is happening, what they can do and not to, you know, not to cause alarm, but certainly how to identify and where to seek killed.
0: Daniel, appreciate you sharing your reporting with us. Thanks for being back on the program.
3: You're welcome, Tom. Anytime. Thank Daniel
0: you. Chang, healthcare reporter for our news partner, The Miami Herald. And Robert, thanks for taking time out as well to speak with us today.
4: Anytime. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Sure. Robert Boo is the CEO of Pride Center at Equality Park in Wilton Manors. Still to come on our program, we'll talk about a, uh, a possibility of a massive increase of protecting what's under the Florida Keys. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Imagine a football field, an American football field, sideline to sideline, end zone to end zone. Now imagine a half million of those American football fields. This is about how much area could be added to the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary under a plan unveiled this week. Sarah Fangman is the sanctuary superintendent. She says that the sanctuary was created in 1990 to protect the Florida Coral Reef and its ecosystem stretching from Key Largo to the Dry Tortugas. Andy Bruckner is the Sanctuary's research coordinator, and he shared with us that the water of much of South Florida, including the Keys, of course, is filled with fishing, boating, and diving opportunities, all supporting the economy and drawing millions of people to the Florida Keys. So let's talk about this effort to uh, increase the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, adding almost 1,000 square miles. Stephen Frank is along with us, publisher of Alert Diver magazine. He's seen uh, some of those square miles underwater, close up as an underwater photographer. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks for your time today.
5: Thank you. Glad to join you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, you've uh, lived in the Florida Keys, Key Largo, for a good long time. Describe how the Florida Reef has changed through the years during your diving career.
5: Well, I arrived here in 1978, so the reef track was quite different. Um, I think the thing that, that I recall most vividly from those years, um, I would go up to Cary's Fort only sporadically because it was a long run from where I was at the south end of Key Largo. And there was this huge track of uh, Elkhorn and Staghorn at South Cary's Fort. And, you know, I would go up there one day and I my camera didn't work or I'd go up another day and I had a a macro lens or something. Anyway, so it got to be around 1982, and I never had really documented those corals properly to, to my eye. And I went up there, and I saw this massive decline. And I thought, you know, how can this happen? I I, was, I assumed that the coral reef would be like in vast geological time span, mm-hmm. but in five years, it was virtually gone in, in this particular reef track and that was my my epiphany that it was a you know it was a vulnerable resource yeah. uh, its time was fleeting and for this one it was gone
0: did you say that uh, was Did you say that was 1982 from
5: it, it started to decline in 82 i don't want to say that all of all of the reef track was gone in 82, but this particular chunk of pristine coral Hmm. was massively impacted by 1982.
0: So my quick math says that was four decades ago, Stephen. When was the last time you were out on the reef and what did it look like?
5: Well, the last time I had a photo class in in June and there was a lot of new coral growth. Hmm. Um, I think it, it really massively depends on water quality and well, there, we also have coral restoration, but I was diving a place called Banana Reef, um, which is like an inner reef track, and there had been some some coral planting there by the Coral Restoration Foundation, and there was a lot of new elkhorn, and I also found uh, what we call this this free-range coral, you know, the the natural elkhorn growth in a different part of the reef, and so yes, four decades ago we saw things that were beginning to decline. And then, you know, there's just so many things that have happened in the intervening time. For example, late in the 1980s, we had a a waterborne pathogen that wiped out the diadema, which is a long spine sea urchin. And, you know, at at the time living it, I thought, great, now when I do a night dive, I'm not going to get stuck in the knee.
0: (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) By the urchin. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. But
5: then in time I I came to understand that they grazed the algae and when the diadema go away, the things, you know, now we have algae ganging up on our coral reef and, you know, the, you know, the things that float through the Gulf stream have no place to adhere and grow new corals. So, you know, and then we had lionfish and uh, stony coral wasting disease. You know, there are just so many insults on the coral reef that, you know, that well, I'll, but you know, I say that, but then good things happen. For example, <laughs> when when I came to the Florida Keys, we had all septic tanks, right?
0: Yeah. So, sure. and now you're on sewer,
5: and now we're on sewer. Right. There, there's huge things that yeah. have, have conspired to make it better.
0: Yeah. Uh, divers themselves, like yourself, sometimes can be pointed to as those that uh, uh, perhaps play a role. Uh, contributing to reef damage. Uh, Folks wanting to maybe, uh, you know, either through ignorance or um, uh, 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 just ignoring what the rules are to try to take a piece of the coral reef home or something even worse than that.
5: Well, you know, that was kind of like the, I think the impetus for reef restoration in the Florida Keys uh, for the John Pennekamp Coral Reef State Park, because Mm -hmm. there were arges, Going down the reef line and and ripping out coral to sell in the curio Shore stores on the highway, so you know John Pennekamp and Dr. Gilbert Boss, uh, you know, led the charge to create John Pennekamp Coral Reef State Park. Now, of course, the state waters only run to three miles offshore, and so we needed the confluence and the cooperation of, of the federal government to create those offshore waters where our our main coral reefs are, you know, most of the, most of the reefs are five to six miles offshore. So if we didn't have the, you know, the, the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, we wouldn't have protection for the really critical habitat.
0: And the plan this week uh, has, I think about a 25% uh, expansion proposed for the Keys National Marine Sanctuary. What would something like that expansion mean for for divers, Steven, for, for boaters, for, for, uh, folks fishing.
5: Well, more is better, obviously, um, more protection is better. But I think one of the the brilliant things, uh, that the sanctuary has done, um, from 1990 onward, when they had the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary, there are two things they had zones of protection. So there are total no take zones, but I think the, the sanctuary is very, uh, aware of user groups. You know there are fishermen and there's spear fishermen and i mean some things will not be allowed they're not going to allow coral collection right but you know underwater photographers like myself you know there are places that are total no take zones and there are others that that cater to other user groups and and what they've done is to try to be very logical and proactive about you know what is a coral nursery you know what is a, a reasonable take zone what adheres to you know kind of the the legacy use of these waters so there are so many people using the waters of the florida keys both oceanside and bayside for so many recreational activities but i mean that's the point there's so many it has to be regulated
0: yeah yeah uh it, it's it's such a unique place in the world folks travel from uh, across the globe to come see those waters off the florida keys including recreational diving how's business been Stephen? uh how could recreational diving be affected by this expansion this proposed expansion of the marine sanctuary
5: well, I think it can only be better. I mean, I, I, I think about what happened uh, when we had the pandemic and, and the Florida Keys was one of the first places was open, you know, Cayman and the Bahamas. And, you know, the, the people that, you know, that share the the pie of traveling divers, they couldn't really do it. And so everybody was coming down the overseas highway and, and diving the Keys. You know, the hotels did really right. well. The dive shops did really well. And truthfully, the the reef did quite well. Um, so, I think if you have more uh, available resource that is protected, from from a a, a commercial point of view, mm-hmm. you know the dive mm-hmm. operators are going to be very well served. I think if you if if you look at all the dive operations in the Florida Keys, I think they're very uh, supportive of the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary. You know, you have the yeah. The Blue Star operators, you know, the ones that are really into, you know, preserving the coral reef as much as they can. But if the reef isn't there, if it's not protected and if there's not enforcement in some fashion to to make it better, longer, you know, what good is their business? If if they can't be in business in five years because there's no coral reef, what good is that?
0: Stephen, thanks for sharing your underwater experiences with us here on dry land. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Stephen Frank is the publisher of Alert Diver Magazine and an underwater photographer based in the Florida Keys. Speaking of which, today we say goodbye to uh, our southernmost reporter here at WLRN, Nan Klingener. Her dedication to telling the stories of the keys for WLRN and our national and international partners runs very deep. Uh, We appreciate all of the reporting that she has covered here in the Florida Keys for all of us at WLRN. Nan, thank you for all you've done for WLRN and journalism here in South Florida. Finally, on the roundup this week, uh, you haven't had enough of the banana and duct tape, have you? Remember that famous and quickly infamous yellow banana duct-taped to a gallery wall in Art Basel in 2019? It sold for $120,000 and was eventually eaten. Well, it's back this time. Another artist sued the Art Basel banana artist, claiming he duct-taped a banana, called it art, and had it copyrighted 19 years earlier. That other artist sued, arguing that his was the first or top banana, forgive the pun, The Art Basel banana artist asked a judge to throw out the lawsuit. And this is where justice has to peel away from the art. In court, such legal tests are used like substantial similarity and strikingly similar. Those were considered in this lawsuit. So was what was called an abstraction filtration comparison test of these works of art. The position of the banana was looked at, the angle of the duct tape, what the banana was duct taped to, All of this was considered in the legal case. And so the Miami federal judge decided that the lawsuit claiming the Art Basel banana copied the earlier banana and duct tape can, in fact, move forward. So a plantain and duct tape, has that been done yet? That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. It is produced by Natu Twe. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. News director is Taryn Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is our editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. The director of radio operations here at WLRN and our program's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maris. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, tweeting, and supporting WLRN and public radio throughout all of South Florida. Our program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.